these historical legacies, which we look at in much more depth in the paper, still hold a lot of salience for stakeholders today. And certainly we found that in our interviews with sports officials, North and South, both current and former. Not least exacerbated, I think, by Brexit, which has injected yet more animosity, I think it's fair to say, in Irish-British relations more generally. And even if that salience is today reflected in, in the desire to, for some to say as little as possible about national identity itself for fear of ruffling those feathers and the inharmonious equality that currently exists today in sport. And we call that sport craft in the paper, which is the kinds of use of sport as a means of achieving other ends, namely to reflect legitimation in the case of Northern Ireland post-partition for some of those sports that I've mentioned. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery and our topic this week is sport as a source both of reconciliation and partnership, but also of division and conflict on the island of Ireland. And we're very lucky to have with us today the authors of a recent Aaron's publication entitled A Shared Ireland, Identity, Meaning, Representation and Sport. And the two authors who are with us are Dr Katie Liston, who's a senior lecturer in the Social Sciences of Sport at the University of Ulster, and then Professor Emeritus Joseph Maguire of the School of Sport, Exercise and Health Sciences of Loughborough University. And we're also very fortunate to have with us uh, the author um, of a, uh, a comment uh, on the article, What About the Athletes Themselves? The Need for a Facilitated Dialogue. And this is uh, Bruce Kidd, a professor emeritus and ombudsperson at the University of Toronto. And I think we're breaking fresh ground in that I don't think we've had a, a former Olympian uh, appear on a, a podcast before, let alone a Commonwealth champion. Um, so you're almost welcome. I wanted to kick off maybe with you, Katie and, and Joseph. When you were, just for, for, our leader, for our general listenership, when you were you know, approaching this paper, this article, um, what were the main questions you wanted to ask and address? We've been working on the question of the relationship between sport and identity for, for quite some time now, Rory. And in particular in this paper, we wanted to explore that relationship in terms of sport being both an expression and a representation of identity. And that term is very broad, of course. Um, we also sought to show a sensitivity to the past and its impact on the present. And when we do that, when we overlay the present, which is in some sports quite complex in its governance on the island of Ireland, when we overlay that with a historical sensitivity, then we begin to see a lot of nuance to that relationship because sport has featured, as we've argued elsewhere, as war with other means internationally and indeed on the island of Ireland. So for your listeners, you might think about the role of sport in cementing divisions between former United Nations, the use of sport, for instance, to harden the German spirit and its role in the ideological struggle between the former Federal Republic of Germany and the German Democratic Republic, and probably even more contemporary cases like North and South Korea also underscore some of those challenges, probably as does post-apartheid South Africa, 
And in this part of the world, we have our own complexities, I suppose, differences that are reflected in the fault lines that we see in sport and in the challenge that you've described, which is trying to achieve mutual understanding. So I suppose in the introduction to the paper, we set out some examples of that at work on the island. And it might be of interest to your listeners to draw them into that a little bit more because it's a divided island. And within it, it also has a divided society that we call Northern Ireland. So some of the examples we cite, very recent examples, like the naming of an athletics stadium here in Northern Ireland, um, an early day motion by government representatives from the first Stormont government in Northern Ireland in 1998 around jurisdictional rights for sports bodies. These highlight the ways in which various groups have sought to use sport for other means. And our interest is the quest by those groups, usually cohering around nationalisms and variations of that, a quest for exciting significance on their part, a quest for recognition and ultimately for identity. And in the case of Ireland, probably ethno-religious fault lines have marked that landscape quite indelibly even if over time and in the last 50 years, adherence to religious practice itself has probably waxed and, and waned. And the issue that we deal with in the paper itself is reflected in a case study around international athletics, the, I suppose, a ribbon sport in Olympic sports as well, because the issue manifests itself in the wording and operation of what we call and what's known as the political boundary rule. And this was a rule adopted by the International Olympic Committee and by the International Amateur Athletics Federation. It's known today as World Athletics, and it was adopted in the 1930s. And it means that one governing body is recognized by international athletics in any country or territory. And that's the terminology that's used. And country is defined as a self-governing geographical area, which is recognized in international law. And territory means an area that has aspects of self-government, at least to the extent of being autonomous. And that probably opens up uh, a question and a discussion for us immediately around what constitutes country, territory, uh, group, national group on the, in, in the context of the island of Ireland. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Joseph, um, anything you want to add to that outline? Only insofar as to say um, all that what Katie was arguing is, is the sort of line we've been following. I guess the, the message we'd wanted to uh, communicate would be that, of course, uh, any study of sport, which is not a study of the society in which it's located, is a study out of focus. And so, of course, we tried to embed uh, the history and development of sports on the island of Ireland within the broader society itself. And the second uh, argument, which we'd probably want to get across, is that in order to understand the present, never mind, of course, devise whatever future might there be, in order to understand the present, we've got to understand how it's emerged out of the past. And so what we've tried to do in our research is uh, very carefully, uh, diligently uncover archival material, which has laid within the sort of dusty um, collections of different uh, athletic bodies, the Olympic organization and so forth, and try to reveal the story of contestation, of struggle um, on the island of Ireland, and indeed on an international stage. 
So we're trying to inform, of course, therefore, how the present has emerged out of the past in order for people to better make judgments about how and in what ways sport might play a role, can play a role in the developing nature of the relationships on the island of Ireland. Uh, Bruce, it's often argued or often said uh, that politics and sport uh, shouldn't mix, uh, although evidently they do mix. We've seen the uh, banning of Russian and Belarusian uh, tennis players from Wimbledon just in the last few days, to take one very recent example. But on the basis of your own experience, um, you know, what's what's your sense about the overall importance of, of sport uh, as an expression of national identity uh, internationally? Well, thank you very much. Sport is a powerful expression of, of nationalism and the organization of the international uh, Olympic Games, uh, which requires nation state representation uh, along the lines of the rule that uh, Katie uh, cited in, in athletics, um, has accentuated that in powerful ways. Um, some would argue that the very success of the modern Olympic Games uh, was enabled because uh, it tied its, its, its own organization to rising 20th century nationalism and the rivalry between nation states. And by providing a forum for that, uh, it ensured its own uh, success. Uh, I, think the, I think to understand the representation of, of sport, of, of athletes, of teams and so on, outside the framework that my colleagues have, have outlined and outside uh, the framework of nation state investment and uh, and competition in sport would be uh, a big mistake they are uh, inextricably intertwined and they they both uh, influence each other the trick uh, as the the Irish Olympic leader Michael Callanan said years ago uh, is to um, is to recognize that while at the same time working to prevent the worst features of nation state rivalry from, uh, from cascading over sport and, and wrecking it in various ways. Uh, and that, that's a big trick in the world today. I think in the case of the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, which has been a game changer for, for a lot of people, including myself, you have, um, you, you have a state uh, really trying to overthrow not only you know, international law and international conventions, but also uh, the, the, the norms of, of Olympic sport, uh, because it's trying to, um, it, it's trying to overturn uh, the correspondence of, of national teams and, and, and nation states uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a violent way. And that's why so many people in response are saying we need to temp- we, we need now to uh, ensure that Russian and Belarusian athletes um, are not there. They represent the Russian state, uh, and uh, and that Russian state is is flaunting all international political norms and all international sporting norms. Absolutely. And of course, we, we've seen again recently, I suppose, in Ireland, we're just celebrating the triumph of Katie Taylor in New York on Saturday night. And 
even though she's not in any way funded by the Irish government, um, she doesn't formally represent Ireland. Nonetheless, this was seen as a, a victory worthy of being saluted by the president and the Taoiseach and, and others. So it, it goes deep. Maybe we might just move on, um, uh, Katie and, and Joseph. Just could you outline what's the current situation in, in sort of major sports in Ireland, including Olympic sports? And maybe let's leave football, soccer uh, to one side just for the moment. But uh, as I say, it seems to me that it's a highly complex area, as I think you've already said. And it seems that people are able at times to pick and choose whom they represent and, 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 and where they go in some sports anyway, more than more than others. I guess the the national symbols of identity, like anthem, emblem and flag, are woven into the fabric of international sport and then into Irish sport. So today, most sports on the island are governed on an all-island basis, a 32-county basis. So prominent examples would include rugby union, hockey, boxing, swimming, um, cricket. Many of these would be known worldwide and therefore are governed by international bodies that may have variations of this political boundary rule or not, as the case may be. And then there are also indigenous games, Gaelic games. So football, Gaelic football, hurling, camogie, rounders and handball played on a, a 32 county basis. Now, most of those sports also have provincial or regional subdivisions within them, including the provinces. Munster, Connacht, Leinster, and the nine-county province of Ulster, which is different in format to that of the six-county Northern Ireland. And thus, in some sports who have All-Ireland status, may have been achieved before or after partition, they may have to negotiate two political jurisdictions, and therefore two forms of regulation or governance. And indeed, some sports that would be eligible for funding due to their international ranking and representation might indeed be funded in the Northern Ireland case through the route of um, British sport as well as Irish sport, broadly speaking. Now, there are others, of course, that are partitioned. You've mentioned one, Rory Football, which we might come back to, but another would be the example that we've looked at in depth in the paper, which is track and field athletics. Um, and it has a prominent role, I think we've argued, in our understanding of the connections between sport and identity. But there's probably another layer that's interesting, which is the Commonwealth Games layer, um, which is another layer of expression for those who see themselves as Northern Ireland first and foremost in this part of the world. And that's not to say it's an exclusive identity either, because there are layers to this, as you know. But the Commonwealth Games would be important for those who see themselves in that way. And these are the successor of what was first known as the British Empire Games, inaugurated officially in 1930. First Games was in Bruce's part of the world in Canada, in Hamilton, Ontario, and in which Ireland sent an all-island athletics team, who in fact won an individual silver medal in the hammer throw. So there are certainly governance complexities to the picture of sport on the island. The striking thing is that these historical legacies, which we look at in much more depth in the paper, still hold a lot of salience for stakeholders today. And certainly we found that in our interviews with sports officials, North and South, both current and former, not least exacerbated, I think, by Brexit, which has injected yet more animosity, I think it's fair to say, in Irish-British relations more generally. 
And even if that salience is today reflected in, in the desire to, for some to say as little as possible about national identity itself for fear of ruffling those feathers and the inharmonious equality that currently exists today in sport. And we call that sport craft in the paper, which is the kinds of use of sport as a means of achieving other ends, namely to reflect legitimation in the case of Northern Ireland post-partition for some of those sports that I've mentioned. Uh, Joseph, uh, one of the things I notice is that uh, from the paper is that you know various sports and sports administrators have been very kind of nimble and flexible o- over the years in managing some of the complexities. I mean, even the mention of the Commonwealth Games, you know, reminds me that you had a, a boxer born in the Republic, Barry McGuigan, who who boxed in the Commonwealth Games, and of course you had a Belfast Protestant, Wayne McCullough, who who won a medal for Ireland in boxing in the uh, Barcelona Olympics. And equally, I understand from the paper that you you can choose as a hockey player um, to play either for Great Britain um, or for Ireland in the Olympics if 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 the two teams get there. But I mean, do you think that this kind of sort of ad ad hoc pragmatic as I say, rather kind of flexible approach ha- has served sport well in Ireland on the whole. If you look at the history of the of sport on the island, um, what we see is that the uh, that post-partition, uh, both sets of politicians started to, of course, um, utilise sport uh, in order to uh, promote a particular set of identities, uh, to reinforce boundaries, uh, and to assert linkages between either themselves and what they would regard as the mainland in the context of the North, or indeed, of course, in Dublin, to establish the Irish Free State as a player on the international stage. The attempts to actually join the League of Nations, uh, various cultural organisations, had its parallel in the world of sport, both joining uh, FIFA, uh, but also joining the International Olympic Committee. So on the one hand, there were uh, administrators there. We sometimes refer to them in another paper as cultural cadres or cultural intermediaries. Uh, These people were very adept at combining statecraft and sportcraft in order to achieve their goals. But both sides of the partition actually were adept at doing that. And so as a consequence of which, those sports which actually retained 32 county representation have by and large continued to do so. But as Katie was indicating, those who were fostering a particular view of the North and Northern Ireland, the six counties of Ulster, were reinforcing a rather more entrenched position, which we'll perhaps come to in terms of football. But just to pick up the point on field hockey, hockey, of course, um, historically was a a sport which was more associated with women than men, though both, of course, play. But the dynamic which was at work on the island of Ireland was that Ulster, the nine counties, actually were the more prominent province in terms of their capabilities and performance levels. But the dilemma or the paradox was that they could either opt, players could, athletes could either opt for representing Great Britain in the Olympic Games or, of course, in the Commonwealth Games for Northern Ireland. But at the same time, and particularly post the Good Friday Agreement, it was confirmed 
that they could assert an Irish identity and could follow the pathway to represent Ireland in the Olympic Games. No, it's a, as I say, it's a highly complex area. And as you rightly say, your your focus um, in the article is heavily on track and field, on Olympic sports. And there, you know, it has been an extraordinarily difficult um, issue over, over many years. But it does appear to have been, to have settled down to a certain degree, anyway, over, over recent times. No, again, just to, to mention, I mean, a, 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 what always strikes me as interesting is that, of course, we now have this sort of non-political, non-sectarian anthem, Ireland's Call, which is played, you know, alongside the Irish national anthem, you know, in matches in Dublin and played on its own in matches abroad. Uh, and funnily enough, I remember hearing that internationals were regularly played up at Raven Hill and in, in, in Belfast until the late 1940s, I think, when, of course, God Save the King was the... Uh, was the was was the anthem that was played, and Ireland played one international, as I, if I recollect, against Italy a few years ago, a World Cup warm up, and I think a number of the players from the south um, indicated that they would not stand for God Save the Queen if it happened to be um, played. So, anyway, uh, very difficult. Let's get on to football then, because football, I suppose, is probably the most popular sport on the island, all in all. And it is very strong. It's very hugely important for for all communities in Ireland, and and many of the greatest players um, from Ireland have come from northern Protestant backgrounds, Dublin working class backgrounds, etc., etc. And football seems to be particularly contentious. And why is this so? Partition was was enforced in football, Rory. Although it's probably important to acknowledge that historically it wasn't necessarily entirely because of sectarian divisions. I mean, there were wider power struggles over the governance of the sport between what were essentially two main groupings in in Belfast and Leinster. And the history of that sport is of a working class sport on the eastern part of the island. But as Joe said earlier, you know, one can't understand sport without situating it within its social context. And thus, the social composition and the historical backdrop to football in Northern Ireland helps to understand its distinctiveness because when we compare it to many of the other sports that we've described already, it's one of the few sports that's a very tangible and embodied touchstone, perhaps even a lightning rod, and I don't use those words lightly, for Protestant unionist loyalist groups. So while support for the Northern Ireland national teams has changed over time, and I think many would argue for the better, what I mean by that is that it now includes more Catholics as supporters, Catholic nationalist Republicans as supporters of the national team than it did some 20 years ago, and indeed greater numbers of players from that social grouping. The symbolism of the team is yet questioned by many supporters and players who feel especially that the anthem and flag are not inclusive culturally and indeed would reflect much more of that touchstone function of the game as as a, a reflection of the identities of Protestant unionist loyalist groups. Now, by comparison, for those in the Republic whose identities have been less under threat compared to the groups in Northern Ireland and indeed who've embraced a stronger Irish diaspora part of the opening up of a formerly socially and indeed economically conservative state, the football team of the Republic of Ireland captured that joy de vivre, I suppose, of the Irish into the 1990s, especially coming out of recession, 
and struggling to come to terms with the impact of the troubles on the island. So successes for that national team included the qualification for the European Championships and the World Cups, and it boosted the, the sporting morale of many of those involved. And the same has probably happened in Northern Ireland of late with the qualifications for the European Championships for the men's team. The women's team for the first time have qualified this year. So as we speak, they're now pretty much in a professional setup training for those championships over the summer. And the sport still reflects and holds an important function for those Protestant unionist loyalist groups. So much so that even the very suggestion of uh, the possibility of a different anthem, well, it, it certainly evoked very strong reactions, let's just say. The, the Irish Football Association, which is the Belfast-based association, had funded some evaluation of their own supporters and players in the mid-2000s. And that indeed was one of the recommendations made at the time to reflect more inclusivity. But that has not been acted upon. And, and having spoken to representatives of that association, and indeed in my own work in this with, with a PhD researcher of mine, we've found that Northern Ireland in terms of football still reflects a very important fantasy shield for those groups and for those who feel that even their very existential existence is under threat, would hold on to that very dearly. And Joseph, I mean, some would, would say that sports administrators ha have a sort of vested interest in maintaining uh, a division in football on the island, both for sort of political, cultural reasons in the case of many involved in the IFA, but also in cynical terms because they get more tickets, they get more places um, on the plane, they get better seats in the stands. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? Certainly, there's always a vested interest, either in terms of their own uh, particular position within an organization. And if, of course, if you were looking to the future and were proposing one organization, then, of course, logically, then there can only be one president uh, or one executive board and one administration. But it, it's not only those who are the um, the administrators or the officials. It also goes to how and in what ways a united Ireland or a shared Ireland might understand how and in what ways both power and resources will be distributed equally, reflecting the needs and interests of the provinces uh, as a whole. So that, that by using sport, we can see this is actually almost the litmus paper for constitutional issues of a more broader kind to do with the National Health Service, uh, to do with uh, policing, uh, to do with administration, and to do with the constitutional relationships. You know, how and in what ways will Belfast and Dublin interact if there was to be a border poll and if the border poll voted for, um, you know, um, reunification? So I think um, it's it's certainly in there is a degree of conservativeness which is not only the defensiveness which you might see in the north, but there is also a conservative tendency within Dublin in terms of maintaining the status quo as it is. But it doesn't have to be like this, because, of course, if you look historically again, informing the present and seeing how that might give us a glimpse for the future, we can draw a parallel with another divided society, and that would be of South Africa. And in the apartheid period, um, the Afrikaners also held on to a particular sport, rugby, as their touchstone, as their fantasy shield. 
but it required leadership on behalf of both uh, the captain of the South African World Cup winning team and also the leadership of politicians to try to move the dial forwards so that rugby would begin to represent the nation as a whole, the new nation of South Africa. And so um, that actually is a promising prospect, which you could possibly see uh, developing on the island of Ireland in relation to uh, constitutional change, uh, both in society at large, but also within the world of sport. No, absolutely. Of course, there's still a, a white majority um, on the South African team, but the captain is is black. Um, now, Katie, just very briefly before we move on to a couple of other th- topics, just as you were speaking there, um, two 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 thoughts. I mean, first of all, certainly, you know, both Northern Ireland and, and the Republic, especially the Republic, maybe, are now much more ethnically and culturally diverse um, than they were, and we've seen a number of of you know really outstanding young players of from immigrant backgrounds making their way into the Irish team also of course there's now women's sport has achieved a level of popularity and attention which would have been unimaginable even 5 years ago I'd say so do you th- see either of those t- tendencies uh, as changing in any way the sort of pattern of sports administration in in Ireland I I think it's happening already Rory in terms of even membership of if you will governance those that are in decision-making positions, there's been a clear emphasis by both Sport Ireland and Sport Northern Ireland to redress what they call the gender gradient, especially in decision-making, which has lagged in terms of its gender composition behind the growth of uh, participation in women's sports that you have described. I don't know that I would conform to maybe some of the determinist arguments that would suggest if you have a woman on a board that therefore the decision-making is going to be automatically better because I think we're all human, irrespective. But I think... The case for diversity and therefore more inclusivity to reflect those who are involved in sport is a strong one. And both Sport Northern Ireland and Sport Ireland have have bought into that, if you will. Indeed, as have most sports internationally. And and the International Olympic Movement has probably been to the forefront of that, I think, in being able to, to try to make that case. And it's reflected both in terms of participation. If I'm right, it's this or the, the last, but one Olympics was the first one where there was more or less... 50-50 participation in terms of of gender. The the role of sport in intercultural relations, however, is probably a more challenging issue, Rory. Bruce, say Joseph did mention the South African example, but naive question. I mean, you know, have you seen sport having a role in improving relationships either within communities or, or between them? I've seen lots of examples of that uh, in my own life uh, across Canada. Uh, and internationally, uh, but they come up against the deeply rooting, lo- deeply rooted loyalties to, uh, you know, nation-state uh, representation, the um, the colors, the anthems, the flags that my colleagues have been talking about. So the trick is to go beyond that. Uh, too often, uh, immigrants from entirely different cultures, women, uh, others, are recruited in to the historic identities and and narratives. And that's what you have to subvert or that's what you have to confront in uh, developing new relationships. But um, in in the day-to-day of competition, you know, where teams, uh, certainly in nation states, but also in commercial sport or uh, like, uh, like international football, 
where, where teams are recruited from very, very different backgrounds. Uh, they're presented as, as one team. They're often uh, presented in terms of, of urban identities or corporate identities as one unified group, but they come from very, very different societies. They, in North America, in basketball, uh, soccer, and, and baseball, teams often have translators to enable athletes from different uh, countries to be able to play together as a team. Those athletes get along. And in international sport, athletes from different countries find they have more in common with each other than the, the tensions uh, expected by their, uh, their, their minders and, and, and their sponsors. And I think, therefore, that athletes uh, could be a powerful voice for, for truth and reconciliation, for, for intercultural dialogue and, and so on. And that's been uh, you know, my experience. It was remarkable at the most recent Winter Olympic Games uh, under the, the horrible conditions of the, the, the lockdown to see athletes from many different countries rejoicing with each other, supporting each other, uh, obviously having tremendous af affection for each other. And I think that although there are examples to the contrary, uh, where, where, where athletes have voiced hatred and, uh, and xenophobia against athletes from other countries. The, the overwhelming desire of most athletes, I know this is a horrible generalization, is to respect each other. And I think in the, the Irish context, uh, providing athletes with uh, voice and leadership uh, to contribute to these discussions would be really powerful. I don't know very much about Irish sport. Uh, as I've said, I know a few examples of athletes who played on both sides at different times of their life with only an eye to uh, a team where they would have a rewarding experience. Most athletes today are well-educated. They, they, they've traveled around. I think they would be wonderful contributors to this, to this debate because most athletes believe in sport as a vehicle for some kind of intercultural humanity. Now, thank you very much, uh, Bruce. Now, in fact, in the Irish context, one can think as well that a, a number of former rugby internationals of different backgrounds have become very prominent voices um, supporting peace and reconciliation. I think of people like Hugo McNeil and uh, Trevor Ringland, Andrew Trimble and, and so on. Joe, looking to the future, I mean, in, in Ireland, I mean, do you see uh, the situation developing much um, over the coming period, as it were, spontaneously or, or, or indulgently, or is it really tied up with the possibility of future political or constitutional developments on the island, would you say? In the lead up to any possible border poll, it will the sort of ideas and discussion we're having and the different stakeholders, including athletes, which Bruce was referring to, um, all need to be carefully considered and uh, a greater degree of planning than we have presently thought through needs to be undertaken. Uh, and I'm thinking of the obvious questions which people on both sides um, of the border would need to want to have addressed. One is the structural relationships between uh, the different organizations, whether that's in healthcare or education, here we're talking about sports. So there are structural issues. Um, 
The second ones are to do with symbolic issues, and that is to do with um, flags, emblems, and anthems. And it it will require a greater degree of understanding, of mutual respect and reconciliation, where different sides, different stakeholders may well have to give up things which they hold very dear uh, and where something new has to be forged uh, into our new century on the island of Ireland. And and that may well require both the... the um, the symbolism of the rugby shirt or the anthems you talked about, not one nor the other, but actually a new anthem, which would be reflective of the provinces of the island itself. And, and then at the societal level or cultural level. And there, uh, of course, sport can provide a symbolic space in which people can come together, where a greater degree of trust can be established and where they show mutual respect for each other. The health warning, I would add, would be if it's not carefully planned, then the flip side to sport, which we know can actually occur, is where it can foster enmity and it can reinforce the sort of boundaries which we do see uh, post-Brexit in the communities in the North uh, more broadly. Katie, do you see government as having any role or, or politicians as having any role in these matters? Or are these questions which should really be left both to the athletes themselves, as, as Bruce was saying, and to administrators within sport? I think capturing what, what Bruce has described as the potential of sport to, in a sense, we're talking about delivering non-sporting outcomes as well. That will take collective, strategic, conscious effort because Groups that already feel under threat can't be left behind, in a sense. And and there are some reasons to probably think further about that in the context of a shared island. I mean, the 2030 Sport Development Goals have provided sport with probably international sport, especially the most legitimate international mandate it's had for many, many years. The, the athlete activism that, that Bruce has described shows in some cases, and the caveat is always the context, but it shows that when athletes do take their responsibilities seriously to represent their communities, that they can harness the power of social movements and in some cases attract politicians to do more than simply view sport as a utility to achieve another end. Because I mean, most of our work, and I think Bruce would agree as well, would show that sport is readily readily acknowledged as having a role to play within various ministerial health and education portfolios. But it usually doesn't have parity of esteem within those portfolios. And probably the third reason to to at least point to opportunities and, and optimism, if there were this collective conscious effort, is that COVID has sparked a rethink. Um, around the world about the role of sport in common good. And and Joe has referred to this and he's written much more about the role of sport in terms of performance much beyond its own sake. And even, you know, when we think about the value of sport mega events, for instance, we've seen politicians north and south commit to joint funding bids going forward. There is a role for sport in more sustainable environmental change as well. So I, I think I, I would come back to focus on this idea of a collective strategic effort. But that also involves us knowing 
and fully understanding our own past and present in order then to bring groups in a more inclusive way to consider all of these various possibilities into the future. Thanks, Katie. We're coming to the end of our time, but I just wanted to ask Joseph um, and Bruce if there are any final points they'd like to make which they feel maybe haven't been adequately expressed so far? Well, I would just underline everything Katie just said uh, and add that if you had, uh, with a collective intentional strategy, teams of athletes from different sports, different backgrounds, going into communities, providing better opportunities, uh, bringing sport uh, to bear on education, community cleanup and environment, uh, health issues and so on. What a powerful example that would be. We know that COVID has devastated opportunities uh, for sport, physical activity, and the resilience that participation in sport and physical activity can bring. Uh, there, there are worldwide data that, that demonstrate that, although I don't know the details uh, about Ireland. Governments have kept professional Olympic sport going, but they've completely neglected grassroots sport, community sport, with devastating, devastating consequences. And it's been the already or the traditionally excluded women, uh, persons of immigrant backgrounds, uh, LGBTQ, the disabled, who've been most left behind as a result of COVID. If there was a collective intentional effort to address that and provide genuine opportunity across a shared island with teams from different backgrounds, what a powerful symbolic message that would deliver and it would actually uh, change conditions on the ground. Joseph, any final thoughts from you? I, picking up uh, Bruce's point, I, I, I would also add that leadership is required along with the planning. And I'm not suggesting that we'll find a Nelson Mandela in Dublin, but we certainly need a person or people uh, who actually are able to show a vision of reconciliation, of mutual understanding, and what a new Ireland would look like, which is inclusive in the long the lines suggested, and that the very communities who have suffered most in the context of the North historically, both working-class Catholics and working-class Protestants, that they too have a part and share in this new Ireland. And in the context and role of sport, it's those communities which also need um, those symbolic spaces in which they can both play and exercise and uh, be healthy, but also culturally, they can express their different identities. Middle-class Protestants who go to private schools in the North don't necessarily need what we've been talking about they are and can see a different future for them already with joint Irish-British citizenship so they can access the European Union. What I'm suggesting is, is that what we need is leadership in Dublin as well as in the North where we are offered a better view of what Ireland would be and what its potential actually is. Well, thanks very much all three of you. And I think one thing which comes through very clearly to me is in fact that you know, one cannot divorce discussion of, of sport and its structures and its role from the, the broader discussions about politics and society, even if sport has its own very clear specificities. So thank you very much, uh, Katie Liston, uh, Joseph Maguire and Bruce Kidd. 
Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.